0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi
2: everybody, welcome to New Books and Japanese Studies, a channel of the New Books uh, Network. I'm your host, Renz Wagenberg, a historian of Japan at Penn State. Uh, today, I'm talking to Aaron Skabeland about his book, Inglorious Illegal Pastor, the Japan's Self-Defense Force During the Cold War, which came out with Cornell University Press in 2022. With me today also is Dr. Elvick Benesh, a Japan historian at York University in the UK. Dr. Benin and myself wrote and researched together the history of castles and, among other things, also military bases in Japan, a topic which we will return to um, in a few minutes. Uh, We both have been long time readers of Dr. Scabaland and learned much from his work on war memory, military society relations, and canon fascist history, a book I teach every year, I must say. And we are thrilled to have him with us today. So, uh, hi, Aaron, if you don't mind calling Aaron. Yeah, sure.
3: Thank you, Ron. Uh, And thank you, Oleg, for uh, your interest in my book and and, uh, having me on the podcast. Um, um, I'm really uh, big fans of you, uh, the two of you. I really enjoyed uh, your co-authored Castle book. Um, And uh, look at my end notes in this uh, book on the SDF will reveal that I reference uh, Oleg's book on Bushido numerous times, which is another great study. And, um, you know, when I reached out to you about a castle question, uh, and it was an ice castle, <laughs> uh, uh, in, in, ch- in chapter three, uh, about Hokkaido and the Sapporo Snow Festival, I really appreciated how you uh, helped me out with that. So it's, it's really wonderful to, to be uh, with you today.
1: No, thanks. Um, yeah, no, thanks. The ice castle. Yeah. I'm always excited to, uh, to see anything regarding castles especially ice ones that's something we didn't cover in the book so ne- next volume uh, but yeah i wanted to um maybe just a, a basic question to start off with um and that is yeah what brought you to this story and uh, could you tell us a little bit more um, about
3: your own background sure um so uh my first uh, experience direct uh, experience with japan was when i was 19 years old and uh i'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, like uh, many young men and, and uh, many young women, uh, I served uh, a, a mission uh, in um, uh, for two years, um, and I happened to be assigned to go to Japan. And um, during uh, that experience, I was uh, living in Fukuyama, uh, which is in Kyoto Prefecture, um, kind of, um, kind of in the middle of the in the prefecture, uh, not far from the Japan Sea coast. Uh, and I was also assigned uh, in Uji near Kyoto uh, for about eight months, if I remember correctly. And um, in both of those places, there happened to be uh, big uh, ground self defense force bases. Um, and the one in Uji was actually a stone's throw away from our, uh, apartment. Um, and, um, you know, during my time in, uh, Japan, during those two years, I didn't have a lot of interaction, uh, with, with members of the, uh, self-defense force. Um, I, at that point, I wasn't, uh, all that interested in them, uh, but I got this distinct impression Uh, that this force and uh, the men who who largely made up the force uh, were regarded with uh, marked uh, suspicion. And this was in contrast uh, with the U.S. military, at least, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, um, probably 80s, I guess. Um, And, uh, you know, in the U.S. at that time, I think, as is the case now, uh, the U.S. military, you know, and, and uh, service members are, are, you know, praised for their service. You know, they're, they're giving, I think that in, in some ways this is just uh, lip service um, um, because I don't think in many ways the actual uh, policies of, of the U.S. government and society more generally really provide all that much support for military personnel and their families. But anyway, I, I, I kind of noticed that things seemed to be different uh, in Japan. And I think that stuck with me um, when I did an MA uh, at Stanford University and worked with Peter Deuce and took his post-war uh, history course. Uh, I wrote a paper about changing notions of, of fatherhood uh, in the 60s and 70s. You know, I was struck by you know the figure of the the salary man, kind of absentee uh, fathers and husbands in the 60s and 70s. Um, so I was already, I was interested in these kind of issues of masculinity and manliness and kind of the relationship with uh, society and politics and the military. Um, and then uh, my first year at uh, Columbia University, where I worked primarily with Greg Flugfelder. Um, I happened to write uh well I took a his class uh, which uh the kind of three keywords were animals uh, Japan and history and i there I wrote what became uh you know the uh, empire of dogs uh, but i i didn't uh, think that was a a a topic that would make a a, a serious dissertation and uh, so I was looking for other options. And my third year, uh, I took a, a graduate seminar with Flugfelder on gender and sexuality. Um, and there I wrote uh, a paper on the police reserve force, that, so the, the beginnings of this post-war uh, military, which becomes the, the self-defense force uh, in 1954. And that became my, my dissertation. Uh, project, at least initially. It's, it's the, the project that I got all my grants for. Uh, I uh, began uh, a Fulbright at Stotsubashi University working with uh, the uh, renowned uh, Japanese historian Yoshida Yutaka, who had done really great work on the imperial military. Uh, but ultimately, you know, in the midst of that research, um, publication opportunities related uh, to the dog uh, project uh, led me to set aside the SDF project, and I went uh, to the dogs. Um, so, um, but, but even as I was, you know, turning uh, what became Empire of Dogs into a dissertation and, and, then, and then into a book, all the while, for the last 20 years, uh, I continued to work on this project on the SDF um, in Hokkaido and elsewhere. And finally, uh, last year, I was I was able to publish my research. And, I, and I'm really glad that it took me that long because it was a really uh, difficult uh, project to figure out. And it was only within the last several years that I figured out what I really wanted to say.
2: Thank you. Um, and uh, I want to jump right into the jump right right into the book and write with a title which is really really eye-catching and and uh yeah i really, really like that and i think uh, it's you you brought up in connection with the uh, Sato Morio, who's a veteran of uh, the gata of the JSDF, and and how and you bring you start with the story like i remember how the scorn hit on soldiers as tax thieves and drag society and Again, I have to use this quote, how uh, for decades, many citizens considered the post-war armed forces to be inglorious, illegal bastard. Can you, using this quote, can you tell us a little bit about the perception of the JSDF in those early years? Um, especially in connection to, and the difference from the, from the imperial Japanese army, which uh, had very different status?
3: Sure. Uh, that's a great question. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you liked the title. Um, it actually, uh, for, for months I was negotiating what the title should be, uh, with Cornell and I wanted to call it invisible men. Um, another, another illusion, but I wanted the IN to be in, uh, parentheses. Uh, but Cornell obviously wouldn't go for that. That would make it very difficult for the book, you know, for people looking for the book to find. Um, And one of their marketing folks opened up the introduction and read it. And he said, here it is. It's right in there, inglorious illegal bastards, because this was an idea that I was already using. So it was right in front of us the the entire time. So uh, in terms of the perception of the uh, GSDF in relation to the IGA, the the Imperial Japanese Army, um, it's complicated. Um, uh, People generally uh, regarded the Imperial Japanese Army and the Navy uh, much more positively. Uh, Of course, there were periods of resentment, uh, say in the early 1920s after the rice riots, after the uh, Siberian intervention, after some kind of uh, political machinations that the the military was involved in. But most of the time, uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, most uh, Japanese most Japanese subjects uh, mourned uh, setbacks that the uh, Japanese army faced and they celebrated uh, its uh, victories. Um, military service uh, was generally regarded as a rite of passage and an avenue for young men to achieve social mobility and, uh, masculine respect. But after Japan's defeat, um, you know, it's the Imperial, uh, Japanese army in particular that is, is blamed, uh, for this disastrous, uh, defeat. Um, and you also have the peace constitution, educational content and, uh, pacifism and anti military sentiment that, you know, uh, erode support for, military values and a military organization and, and these, these, uh, uh, military, uh, men. So, you know, under the guise of creating uh, a police force, uh, the U S uh, occupation, uh, uh, authority MacArthur, uh, they, they tell Japan to, to create what becomes known as the police reserve force. Um, and there's very little debate it, it's this is largely done in secret um and uh because of what came before and kind of this process uh during the occupation from 1950 uh this organization is very much isolated and alienated from from a wider society um so you know in in from the time of the police reserve force and then uh with the national safety uh reserve which is started in 1950 and then it becomes the uh self defense force in uh, three branches air maritime and and ground you know there's there's a great uh concern about whether this organization has the support of wider society uh, and they put a lot more emphasis in trying to win uh over support from from wider society
1: no great thanks and, um I think one of the things on, on that kind of um, continuities that, that struck me is is about the physical continuities and ruptures kind of going from the pre-war, if we call it maybe the transfor, trans-war continuities. And and one of the things I was, I was very much interested in was the, the kind of base locations, kind of the physical places of these things. I mean, you mentioned uh, Uji is one of your first encounters, Fukuchiyama, um, which I think also, you know, we're... Certainly, Uji was a pre-war base, and and but I was often thinking in in the imperial period up to 1945. So many bases are located in very central urban areas. I mean, especially these kind of former castle sites, and and even today, you know, in Shibata up in Niigata and um, Sakura out in Chiba Prefecture, you know, they are in former castle sites. Um, and you mentioned Sakura in the book, um, and I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit more about kind of the physical locations about um, GSDF bases now and maybe kind of in relation to earlier IJA bases um, and maybe about the transition?
3: Sure. That's a great, great question. Um, I, 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 think you're right, Oleg, that the location of these, uh, bases matter, uh, particularly when it comes to the ground self-defense force, uh, which has a lot more interaction with, uh, society, a wider society than does the maritime self-defense force. Um, in some ways, I wish I would have done a kind of systematic uh, study of, of where all the bases were located. Uh, but I really, you know, as we historians do, we re- rely on uh, what work has been done before on the historiography. And in this case, I, I relied on the excellent work of the historian Matsushita Takaaki. Um, and in his uh, study, he shows that, as you've indicated, uh, except in some limited uh, with some except for some limited exceptions, um, many of these uh, ground self-defense force bases were physically isolated from wider society. Uh, for example, uh, in, Nayoto, uh, in, in uh in kind of northern Hokkaido, uh, the base is not, well this is a new base, um, but it is created outside, uh, of town, and uh, because uh, a lot of these IGA bases, these uh, imperial uh, army bases, uh, had been in the you know near the center of cities, you know they had become parks or universities or or different things during the early occupation years. Uh, it was no longer possible for uh, the police reserve force to to make them their bases. So they're often uh, located, isolated from the communities uh, uh, in which they're located or near which they're located. Um, and this really mirrors the kind of psychological isolation and alienation of the force that it experienced during these early years and even, even decades. Uh, and this is, as you've suggested, in contrast with the IGA, uh, IJA. Uh, which is both physically and psycholog- psychologically much more uh, close to wider society and was able to create uh, kind of uh, organizational support structures in communities and neighborhoods, you know, what uh, Richard Smithhurst has called a social basis for militarism. And that's a, a, in stark contrast to um, the, the uh post-war period. Yes, there are continuities, but there are some stark differences as well. I want to
2: stay with the theme of comparison, but not, not maybe chronologically to the Imperial Japanese Army, the IGA, but to other post-fascist uh, uh, militaries. I mean, it, in our work, we compare uh, a lot, we, we compare a lot uh, what happened in Japan to Germany, uh, to what happened in Germany. Um much less so to Italy, but you, you make a mention introduction, which really intrigued me. And it seems you have done a lot of reading on, on this. Can you compare a little bit the post-history of the post-war Japanese military with the Italian and German?
3: Yes, I think that's a really um, important question. Um, when I write Japanese history, I always try to write it from a at least an implicitly comparative uh, framework. Um, and so in my introduction, um, I talk about some similarities and differences between uh, not only Japan and Germany and Italy, but also uh, bring in examples of France and, and the United States uh, and, and elsewhere. Uh, but to stick with, you know, the, the similarities and differences between Japan and uh, Germany and Italy, Uh, I would say that um, it's important to remember that uh, the uh, post-war, I think one of the most important differences is that uh, in Italy and particularly in Germany, uh, the uh, post-war militaries were re-established under the auspices of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, So that gave them a much greater legitimacy also, in contrast with uh, Japan, uh, in in uh, Germany, uh, the um, there was a lot of discussion, debate um, about uh, rearmament, uh, and this was not the case uh, in Japan. In Japan, MacArthur says uh, create a, a police reserve force, um, and this is really a quasi military, uh, but they're using. Uh, you know, kind of coded language. Uh, it's, it's, it's being largely done in secret without a lot of debate. There's censorship going on. Uh, so I think that makes a big uh, difference in kind of undermining the legitimacy of the post, uh, world war II Japanese military. Uh, but there also are some, some similarities in Germany. Uh, there's greater support for, for the reestablishment of, a of a military in the countryside. And, um, this is uh, also the case in Japan. Um, and and as I've suggested, this is, uh, these, these kind of trends, these kind of patterns are not isolated to these post-Axis uh, powers, uh, but you can also see, you know, after uh, the United States defeat in Vietnam that the U.S. military uh, loses, and, and, and military men are, are are kind of criticized and lose legitimacy for a time. And it really takes, uh, you know, a concerted effort, a, a public relations effort on the part of the US military uh, to overcome what has been called a kind of crisis of legitimacy. Um, and to, uh, you know, this is part of, of what one scholar has called a re of America.
2: Yeah, one thing I noticed almost immediately when I came back from the U.S., from Japan this year, that I've seen so many military uniforms on campus here. Yep. I don't know about the U.K., Oleg, but it's, it's very rare. For, uh, I mean, you would never even imagine this. Yeah, It's very, in Japan, even you go to the airport, sometimes you see someone in uniform, but it's very, very rare, right? Right. Yep. But here, um, the military is much more, I mean, much, much, much more integrated, at least in university uh, life um Speaking of the U.S. military, and this is something that this is overshadow the whole book, right? The role of the U.S. military, uh and in creating, I mean, I think famously uh, the JSDF was referred to once as a little U.S. military. Yep. yep. Uh, or I, don't, I forgot the exact quote, like yeah. but you know they do they they wear American uniforms, they look they they use American forces. I mean, a cover of your cover of your cover of your book has a, a column of tanks, which are American tanks, mm-hmm. um, and especially when you talk about the the training of the officers, I mean, this is uh, the, the the impact of the U.S. military seems very, very uh, clear. Can you tell us a little bit more, I mean, there's a big question, but maybe as concise as you can about the role of the U.S. military, how does it change through years?
3: sure um
2: the questions <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah i'd say even more than the the training of of new officers which happened in the uh national defense academy which still exists to this day um there were some american advisors attached uh to that effort and 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 certainly in kind of the creation of of uh that uh academy uh the u.s did play a role but the US's, uh, U.S. military's most uh, important um, influential role was in the creation of the police reserve force. Um, Japan simply uh, didn't have the leadership to do this because uh, much of the imperial uh, military, um, particularly the, the imperial army uh, leadership had been purged uh, and they weren't being welcomed back, uh, either by MacArthur or by uh, Yoshida. Uh, so, uh, and, and there's just a, a rush to, to create this force, right? Uh, the U.S. military uh, has been uh, uh, transferred to the Korean Peninsula uh, to try to fend off uh, that invasion. And so there's this power vacuum that's created. And overnight, very quickly, they have to create this force and so they rely extensively on uh, U.S. military officers to organize and, and conduct uh, the training uh, in the wake of, of the outbreak of the, the Korean War. And, um, but, but, and this continues uh, pretty much until the end of the occupation, uh, but in the, the decades afterward, you know, despite uh, the bilateral, bilateral treaty between the U.S. and Japan, Um, There's very little uh, interaction between these two militaries, particularly between the ground self-defense force and uh, American military forces that are stationed in Japan. There are uh, no uh, joint training operations uh, that take place uh, from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and it's not until the 1980s that these uh, begin uh, again. Or it really began for for the first time. Um, that said, uh, because of this massive U.S. presence on bases throughout Japan uh, during these decades, the U.S. kind of overshadows uh, the SDF, particularly the Ground Self Defense Force, um, and this leads many in society to kind of question the necessity of the of the SDF, um, and you know. Uh, The Cold War comes to an end, but a lot of things haven't changed. Uh, So a lot of these same issues uh, continue on in in post-war Japan
0: today. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah, and I'm mean, looking for the book, trying to look for, for the quote about the. Uh, because one thing you talk a lot about is military academies, and the one the one in Yokohama, I forgot the name again. I
3: national. F- I was looking
2: for it, And there is one quote. I mean, one, one, one scene, that kind of serendipitous. Like the 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 cadets in the military academy are are de- having a ball. Ball dancing, right? Or yeah, ballroom dancing, yeah. Or saloon yeah. dancing, and like a conservative getting. Was it Mishima that wrote that got? Well, Mishima wrote about it, and
3: someone else got. Uh, Mishima didn't write about ballroom dancing. He did. He did visit the. Did visit, academy, yeah, quote right? uh, as as a, uh, I think a columnist for the Mainichi, uh, newspaper, and he wrote uh, kind of ambivalently about the academy. And its superintendent uh, Makitomo, um, but it was, and now I'm uh, spacing the name. Uh, it was a, a former imperial, a notorious uh, uh, imperial army officer um, who who uh, probably should have been convicted for for war, war crimes, but he was able to avoid getting arrested. Who becomes a politician who criticizes uh this ballroom dance is dancing because he thinks it's unmanly and something that the imperial army uh, officer corps would have never engaged in. That's one of my that is my favorite story in the book. I think it's- <laughs> even
2: though I have to say I teach when I teach uh, there's in Japan at war uh, the book that oral histories of Japan at war, uh Cook I think. Uh, and he has this section by a dance teacher from Tokyo that tells that Imperial Navy cadets would come and take classes because they will have to dance when they're abroad.
3: Yeah. So, and and that's I'm, this is something that we I'm sure we won't have time to talk about. But there's a big difference uh, between kind of the Imperial Japanese Navy officer corps and the uh, Army corps uh, Navy, you know, uh, Members of the Navy, they, they go throughout the world. Uh, they're seen as more cosmopolitan, more sophisticated. Uh, so it was okay for them to do this, but not really for army men. And those you can see those continuities uh, in the post-war period as well. And I, I'd like to mention the, the wonderful work of Alessio Patalano, I think I got that right, uh, who, who's written uh, about uh, the, uh, I think it's called post-war uh japan is a naval power is the title of the book
0: yeah
1: that's uh yeah it's a, it's a wonderful story um kind of that clash of the the generations there as well the uh, um i want to maybe move on a little bit towards um chapter three where you you're focusing on on the self-defense forces in hokkaido and I mean, elsewhere in the book, you, you mentioned a few times about how Kyushu is overrepresented in terms of recruits, uh, you know, far more than the proportion you'd expect of the population are, from Kyushu are, are entering the, the SDF. And and I mean, you suggest this due primarily to economic factors rather than cultural ones of, you know, I don't know, some kind of pronounced samurai spirit in Kyushu or something like that, as I think some people might insist. Um, but I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit more with um, just about how recruits from different regions might be viewed um i i'm thinking mainly back to the imperial japanese army where there was a sense that you know recruits from kind of you know these kind of tough rural recruits these these farm boys so to speak were what you really wanted for the army um whereas urban recruits were seen as maybe being a bit soft they might have been exposed to you know dangerous thought like socialism and and things like that um and so you had different views of different people from different regions and i was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit more about about that those kind of different regions people are coming from in the or in the JSDF and and how that's that's seen.
3: In in my analysis of you know uh, these Kyushu recru- recruits, I I draw uh, from the work of Tomoyuki Sasaki, Sasaki uh, who, who who whose first book was about uh, the SDF, and uh, I I essentially agree with his analysis that um, you know economic. Factors uh, probably were more important than kind of uh, ideology, Um, but people often these recruits would often use ideology as a kind of justification. But uh, underlying the underlying kind of rationale or motivation was was largely economic. And and I felt uh, in in the inter one one of one of the the joys of of uh, doing this research was uh, doing a lot of. Uh, oral history interviews with uh, veterans of the force. Um, you know, uh, Ron mentioned uh, Sato Morio, uh, who I be- begin the book off with. But I, I interviewed a-, a number of uh, you know former rank and file uh, personnel, uh, but also uh, you know older men who had who had uh, attended the National Defense Academy and, and had joined the officer and had, had had risen very high uh, in the ranks of the force. Uh, but to return to your question, Oleg, um, I think that um, uh, the SDF um, in particular, um, this is less the case for the, the PRF, the police reserve force, they, they had plenty of people applying because Japan was in such uh, terrible economic shape. But for in during many periods in the, in the fifties and the sixties, uh, uh, the economy is doing so well that it's very difficult, uh, for the SDF to attract recruits. So they'll, they'll take anybody they can get, whether they're from the countryside or from the city, uh, they really can't uh, pick or choose. Uh, so, um, I think, uh, the the where these where these young men came from it's mostly young men uh really is not quite as in, as important as as earlier uh as as during the 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 pre war years
1: yeah and you know, that's that's fascinating and, and i think yeah the reasons in the pre war years yeah can also be re examined i think um kind of the dominant views on those i i want Maybe touch on the chapter four, and there's one bit where I mean you're you're talking in a bit of depth on uh, Mishima Yukio's you know failed coup and his his suicide, um and I mean I've engaged with with Mishima a fair bit mainly due to his kind of fascination with the samurai and bushido and a lot of the things around that, and I mean he's obviously a very complex figure, and and you know I don't want to kind of portray him as being representative. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe just say a little bit more about about his significance and his views and the extent to which maybe some of these views could be shared by other critics of the self-defense forces on both maybe the left and right um, of yeah, the political yeah. spectrum.
3: Yeah, well like, I, think, I think that's a really savvy ob- observation that uh, Mishima's views uh, could be shared by both those on the right, and he was certainly very right-wing, but also by the left, um, both the right and the left, uh, uh, regarded the SDF as, as he put it, uh, just before he committed uh, suicide, you know, they, they regarded the SDF as a bastard child of the constitution and both, uh, uh, disparaged the force as mercenaries for America. So that critique is shared by both sides and, and even those in the middle, Uh, are kind of conflicted about the the existence of this organization. Um, You know, uh, Mishima uh, said that Japan had become infatuated with economic growth uh, and had forgotten the foundational principles of the nation. And and that's a critique that at different times uh, is shared by by both the right uh, and the left. Um, And I'd say that, you know, many people at the time Uh, both within the SDF and beyond, uh, found his actions to be reprehensible um, and his rhetoric to be thoroughly exaggerated. But on some level, they agreed or they were sympathetic uh, with his critique of the SDF, but also of of post-war Japan uh, more generally. And uh, I didn't really do extensive interviews with members of the SDF today and you know members of society you know what how they regard the how 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 they regard the force but i got the sense that uh there are similar sentiments uh to be found uh in the sdf and in wider society about mishima's views
1: yeah and um i guess then was that the kind of last main chapter when you're um focusing more on okinawa um and i mean i really did enjoy these kind of regional foci of the of the different chapters because it really shows a lot of diversity in there as well um and i guess one you know it is very specific challenge that the the self-defense self-defense forces face in okinawa and being accepted there and i was hoping you might just tell us a little bit more about that and how the more generally how the sdf might need to take different approaches in different regions of japan in terms of how it liaises with local residents. Um and I mean I was kind of also thinking if that's something in other contemporary democracies, but I don't know if that's too big a question here.
3: Oh wow. Uh <laughs> I um so in terms of the great question, uh look, thank you. Um in terms uh, and and actually one of the the joys of doing this book was uh being able to go to these different regions. You know, I don't think there's all that many books that Uh, have chapters both on Hokkaido and Okinawa and other parts of Japan. Um, And I really enjoyed uh, doing that research and and, uh, working in these different archives and interviewing a variety of of people both within and and out of the force. Um, In terms of uh, the the SDF's approach to try to win greater support from wider society, um, in many ways, the, the... Okinawa was, and I would st- st- say it still remains the most challenging place for uh, the self-defense force. Um, it's, it's much more difficult than, you know, what the SDF was encountering in mainland Japan uh, in the 1950s or and even in the 1960s as well. Um, but I, I would say generally the force took a, a very localized approach they empowered uh, these public relations officers uh, like uh, Irikura, who I mention uh, frequently uh, in the book. Um, and uh, the, they, they, they were able to take a very localized approach. Yes, they were learning from, you know, in Okinawa, they were clearly learning from some of the strategies that had been used in Honshu uh, and Hokkaido and elsewhere uh, in the previous decades. But uh, they also were able to to kind of figure out strategies that were appropriate for that uh, specific region. Uh, Because, you know, Japan may may seem very homogeneous, but in terms of this this relationship with the SDF, Hokkaido is very different than Kyushu, and Okinawa is very different from these other places. So um, I think you know, each of these regions uh, had, uh, well, each of these regional armies uh, had their own kind of newspaper, and that was a resource that was was really uh, wonderful to use. Um, and I think I'm, I'm probably the first one uh, to ever use those materials, either in in English or Japanese publications. And uh, I think that's evident of this kind of localized approach. Yeah.
2: Yeah, can I stay with Okinawa because there's something and go for a little bit of script because one thing that I was kind of struck when you talk about the Okinawa brigades in 1976, they, they marched to the Peace uh, peace Plaza on Mabuni Mabuni Hill in Okinawa. I just, and and this is quite a statement, right? And uh, I was reminded, and in my first book also, I, I kind of tackled, uh, and, and I still hope to, to go back to that. That the, GS, the GSDF also marching in Hiroshima on, on, on Peace Avenue, right in front of the A dome. I have this amazing. Wow. Yeah, they do it for like seven or eight years. Um, and this incongruity of like an, a, an army marching to, especially in Okinawa, right? They, they march to Peace Plaza, but it's not a very peaceful place, right? I mean, the, the person who does it does it not for commemorating peace. I mean, how does it? How do they square the circle? Right, an army marching to peace plaza, but yet to commemorate the bushido-inspired suicide of uh, I forgot the name of the general. How does how do people inside the GSD have kind of square the circle of the peace ideology? Call themselves like peace army on one hand, yet trying to to continue this uh, long tradition of from the IGA. Because if you go to also. Like in Kurume, you go to the museums um, of the brigade in Kurume, and it's all about regimental history. It's, it's, right, right. So, how, how, does,
3: how do they try? How do they, I
2: don't know if you can answer, but how do they try to square the circle?
3: So, I think this is indicative of mm-hmm. this of of local public uh, relations officials, and in this case, local commanders uh, being empowered to do what they would like to do. Um, Kuae, who is this Okinawan-born, raised uh, commander of the regiment in, in Okinawa, he's the one who makes this decision. And I'm sure he doesn't get authorization from Tokyo to do this. Um, he's also on his way out. He's about to retire. So I think he's willing to take this risk. And he, I think he, he personally was very frustrated that the SDF uh, was not being uh, gaining greater acceptance uh, in Okinawa. Um, and so he, I think he wanted to make a statement. Yes, it's contradictory, but he also wanted to, to, to say, we actually are for peace, um, and we're going to conduct this military march to show that we are not only for peace, but we're here to defend Japan and Okinawa specifically. And yes, there was some pushback, but not as much pushback as one would have suspected. So in some ways, I think he was validated. And these strategies that were being used from 1972 to 1976 uh, were having some success, right? Uh, And and as he says, when he retires uh, soon thereafter, he says, um, actually, it it was helpful uh, for the society and the press to be saying, "Oh, these people are monsters," uh, because when we actually interacted with the 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 general uh, population in Japan, they realized that we weren't monsters. So that worked to our advantage. Yeah, and I have to say, in Hiroshima
2: also like thousands of people lining up the streets, like waving little uh, Japanese flags, and and it's pretty and it's pretty successful, even. Uh, even though the left see it in a contrast in like black and white uh, and many people, I mean, the media also see in black and white, but there's many nuances and contradictions as, as you point out. So, um...
3: Also, I, Ron, I, I would, I would say that it also helped that he didn't broadcast or, uh, publicize what he was going to do beforehand. Right. Cause that would have given, uh, the opposition, uh, an opportunity or time to organize a protest. I'm In that same chapter, I mentioned a march uh, that happened uh, in Naha, I think around the same time, maybe a year or two before, and there was massive protests, uh, but that's because they knew it was going to happen. And this march to Mabuni, he does it unannounced, um, and so there's there's no time for for those who are opposed to the SDF in in okinawa to 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 get organized
2: yeah in Hiroshima also it's like showing a red a red sheet to a bull so that right, is, right, right, you're you're right. really <laughs> uh clash with riot police. it's a whole master um so let I me mean, run through the, the the 40 minutes mark and uh we still have so much to talk to but uh i wanna and, and because we're a little bit pressed for time i want to conclude and ask you what are you up to now what are you working on what you working on now what's the next Sure.
3: Um, I am going back to animals, um, and I'm working on a a project about hunting in the Japanese empire, writ large. Um, And in many ways, I'm building on two articles that I wrote with a former student, Joseph Seeley, who's now uh, at the University of Virginia. Uh, We published uh, an article in Environmental History on tigers, real and imagined in Korea's physical and cultural landscape. And then uh, just a few years ago in 2020, uh, we published an article in the Journal of Asian Studies, Bite Bite Against the Iron Cage, the ambivalent uh, dreamscape of zoos in colonial Seoul and Taipei. So in that work, and also in my earlier work on dogs, I encountered uh, stories of hunting. Uh, So I've always wanted to to do something more on that. So uh, Joseph and I uh, are not simply uh, satisfied with co-authoring a book. Uh, We want a third author to make things even more challenging. Uh, And we've recruited uh, Lisa Yoshikawa, uh, who teaches at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, uh, who is is working on hunting uh, and colonial Taiwan. And we really didn't want to compete with her. So we uh, recruited her to join, uh, which will uh, uh, a book project, which will have three uh, authors if we're able to pull it off.
2: That's amazing. I
3: mean, it's me and Oleg, right? we, we, <laughs> we highly
2: recommend working with with other people. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, So, thank you so much for your time. Again, there's so much more to talk to, but thank you so, thank you for coming today. Thank you for your time, and uh, thank you, Oleg, for joining us also.
3: No, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you to you both, and thanks for your interest and your great questions. Thank you.
0: Thanks. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call